Monday, November 15th, the astronauts aboard the International Space Station heard from U.S. Mission Control in Houston that there was a problem. Hey, Mark, good morning. Sorry for the early call. Uh, we were recently informed of a satellite breakup and uh, need to have you guys uh, start reviewing the safe haven procedure. Russia had just shot down one of its Soviet-era satellites in a missile test. And by doing so, it created a dangerous field of what's called space debris. The International Space Station had quite a scare yesterday, flying debris, forcing the astronauts there to shelter in place. Thanks to this missile test, space debris was high up in the headlines this week. It had spread a cloud of hundreds of thousands of pieces of space debris, smaller than three inches, and thousands of larger pieces that will remain in orbit and threaten satellites and space missions for years. But it's been a concern long before Russia shot down this satellite. So why is space debris so important to those of us here on Earth? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Russia's now joined a small club of nations that have conducted anti-satellite weapons tests. Only the U.S., China, and India have done it before. And this latest test from Russia was expected to create quite a bit of space junk. But space debris is hardly new. And as we send more stuff to space, there's more potential for catastrophe. Some of it's tiny, some of it's as big as a bus. All of it's hurtling around the Earth at speeds in excess of 27,000 kilometers an hour, crisscrossing at different orbits, and on a potential collision course with the things and people that we want up there. Space debris even warranted its own U.S. congressional hearing earlier this year. Now we're on track to have a major collision in low Earth orbit roughly every 10 years, and that's that's problems only getting worse and worse. Our colleagues at Start Here, Al Jazeera's weekly digital explainer show, have also had their eyes on space debris for a while now. They spoke with a few experts for a story in October. And one of those people was Moriba Ja, an associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. I call it satellite gerontology. These things age and, and limbs and these sorts of things eventually fall off. And so space debris is really any object in orbit that humans have placed there that no longer serves any sort of purpose or function. So it could be pieces of satellites falling off. It could be that from time to time, two of these objects meet at the same place at the same time with very different speeds. And so things collide and become many, many smaller pieces. So that's part of the issue. So all of these things, nuts, bolts, panels, multi-layer insulation, flecks of paint, all of these things constitute this anthropogenic space object population that we can call debris. And over the decades, humans have put more objects in space that could potentially leave debris behind, like rockets and GPS and communication satellites, even the International Space Station itself. In some ways, it's visible even here from Earth. I remember when I was a teenager and I looked up at the night sky, I could see a few satellites and dots going across, but now it's very different. The skies are changing. 
And if you can notice it from here, imagine what it's like up there, flying around in Earth's orbit. I think the easiest way to think about it is we have oceans here on the Earth, and we don't just navigate across the oceans just anywhere. We take advantage of natural shipping lanes based on the ocean currents and that sort of thing. So similarly to that, in space, we have orbital highways, places that we put specific objects to serve very specific purposes. And so these highways are becoming more and more congested. And when things die on orbit, dying on orbit doesn't mean that they cease to exist. It means they keep on going at these fast speeds, but nobody can control them now. So it's almost like being on a highway with your vehicle. And as you're driving, you're seeing pieces of cars go by you or whole cars with no drivers. And the amount of traffic that is uncontrolled is increasing. So that's the problem. Space agencies can track some of the bigger pieces of space debris. NASA says there's about 23,000 softball-sized pieces of space junk orbiting Earth. And they're traveling quite fast, up to 28,000 kilometers an hour. It's not hard to imagine the kind of damage something of that size and speed could do. But even tiny bits of trash can pose a danger. There's about 100 million pieces of debris larger than a millimeter out in space. And while that might not seem that big... Something as small as a speck of paint, so a millimeter-sized object, can definitely damage a working satellite. Maybe not uh, render it useless, but certainly damage it. And that satellite may be providing a service like, I don't know, financial transactions, position navigation and timing, weather warnings, these sorts of things. So how much more of this debris did Russia's missile test create? Here's Ned Price, the spokesperson for the U.S. Department of State, putting out the U.S. estimate. The test has so far generated over 1,500 pieces of trackable orbitable debris and hundreds of thousands of pieces of smaller orbital debris that now threaten the interests of all nations. Of course, this week, the headlines were all about hypothetical worst-case scenarios. Space debris hit something like the International Space Station, potentially putting people's lives at risk. It's territory that's already been covered by Hollywood. Like in the movie Gravity. Explore's been hit. Explore, do you read? But space debris affects all of us, not just astronauts. Moriba's already hinted at this. A lot of objects in space are pretty important to day-to-day life on this planet. Space fulfills a few things as an environment. One, it's the place where we're putting more and more technology to provide us with enhanced services like global internet, like the ability to know a week in advance that there's a storm coming, that we should do something about it, or disaster relief to figure out with satellite imagery. So all of these satellites that are providing these services, there's no force field like in Star Wars to shield them from debris, especially the stuff that we can't track. And again, while the space agencies are tracking some of those bigger particles, there's plenty of other stuff floating out there. And a single collision isn't the only thing to worry about. 
something that's really tiny, like under a, a millimetre or a centimetre in size, would really only cause a lot of damage if it like goes straight through some key electronic component. That's Alice Gorman. She's an associate professor at Flinders University, and she's also written a book on space debris. But the problem is you're not dealing with just one of these particles. You're dealing with what's called a flux of these particles. So spacecraft are being constantly bombarded by these little tiny, tiny bits. So they won't cause an explosion straight away, but they will over time wear down the materials that the spacecraft is made out of. So they're a lower level of threat than large objects. But of course, we're creating more and more of these tiny, tiny little pieces of debris every day. And cleaning up that space debris is far from straightforward. It's pretty political. The interesting thing about the problem of space junk is that there isn't like one authority who can say, right, you made this junk, you go and clean it up and enforce that. So every nation that launches a spacecraft into orbit is responsible for any damage that its stuff causes to the spacecraft of other nations. But of course, the problem is when spacecraft start to break up and turn into smaller bits of debris, you have to figure out whose it is. So the liability has to be attributed to someone, and that could be quite difficult. But the real problem here is the collective. It's all of the space junk operating together. And that's where things become tricky, because we don't actually have, you know, an organisation whose job it is to, to make sure that people clean up after themselves. So there's a lot of reliance on people being good space citizens. Alice says that most space missions will create some kind of debris. But there are guidelines that have been around for a while with best practices for minimizing the amount of trash in space. And they say things like, when you plan a space mission, you ought to have a plan for its end of life. Uh, And that plan should be not longer than 25 years, shorter if you can do it. So you've got to have a plan. You're either going to boost the old spacecraft up incredibly high out of harm's way or you have to have enough fuel left for it to lower its orbit and get dragged into the Earth's atmosphere. But in terms of who is managing the whole of Earth orbit and everything that's in it, the best we have, the United Nations is responsible for some of the treaties which deal with like liability. There's an interagency orbital debris committee which has members from all of the major space agencies. But as you can see, it's not especially effective. So one calculation says that as much as 40% of all spacecraft launched into Earth orbit don't have one of those end-of-life plans. So we are dependent a lot on good behaviour. And it's not just governments that need to behave. Lots of commercial entities are involved and they're expanding their space footprint by quite a bit. So we've kind of had a situation for a number of decades now where we're launching more and more stuff, we're getting more and more junk, and the number of possible collisions has been getting higher. But it's still not like you see in the film WALL-E, which people might have seen, where there's a thick layer of junk around the Earth. So it's not like that at all. But what's happened that's different in the last couple of years, is the launch of what's called mega constellations of satellites. 
So these are tens of thousands of spacecraft, all in low Earth orbit, which is the most congested area, and they're aimed at telecommunications. So whereas once upon a time, we would have run most of our telecommunications through satellites that are in an orbit 35,000 kilometres away, now that function is being moved into low Earth orbit. And to do that, they don't need three satellites in what they call a constellation, satellites working together. They need hundreds and hundreds. So this is the Starlink mega constellation, OneWeb, and there's quite a few others. You may have heard of these constellations. Some are being created by companies like SpaceX and Amazon, and others are following suit. The European Union has outlined a plan to launch a mega constellation of satellites into space to run the internet. It's hoped the initiative will help to counter the private sector push into space, promoted by billionaire backers such as Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. The purpose of these mega constellations is is to provide low-cost broadband internet, particularly to parts of the world which haven't always had access to it, and and cheaper. So it's a commercial service, but it requires these hundreds and hundreds and thousands of spacecraft. So this is a whole new problem. So to put this in context, there are around 4,700 functioning satellites in Earth's orbit right now. SpaceX Starlink constellation has received approval to send up to 12,000 satellites alone in its first iteration. Eventually, it wants to launch 30,000 more. The public line is all of them, you know, when they reach the end of their working life, they'll be pulled out of low Earth orbit and that it will be perfectly safe and it won't increase the risks. But of course it's going to increase the risk because of the number of them and because of their location. This incredibly rapid increase is something we don't fully understand the implications of at this point in time. And it's my opinion that we can't necessarily rely on commercial operators to give us all of the information we need to assess the risks because they don't have to. So how do you balance these problems? What takes precedence? Getting all these satellites working that can offer affordable broadband or keeping space highways clean so those same satellites aren't hit with flaking paint and floating pieces of insulation? I guess we look into the future and we say, what is the worst case scenario? And someone has already done that. Back in the 1970s, two space scientists, Donald Kessler and Burton Courpelet, predicted that at some point in the future, we could get to a point where the number of collisions keeps increasing, even if we put nothing new into the orbit. So it could make parts of Earth orbit unusable. So that's the worst case scenario. If we, you know, we made a line to one to 10 and the Kessler syndrome was 10, everybody would say, we don't want to get to that line. We want something that is respectful of our atmosphere and Earth orbit and outer space as an actual environment that has its own values and maybe its own rights, but we still want to keep using those space services. We just need to work out where we draw that line in our little scale of one to 10. So if we can somehow get to that position, then we will have ensured that we maybe have several hundred more years of safely using space 
instead of maybe several decades, which is what it's starting to seem like. This kind of conversation might feel familiar. The notion that humans have a short amount of time to get their interactions with their non-human environment under control, or there could be catastrophe. You know, across the world and for centuries, there has been this idea that the Earth and now space exists for us to use. That's starting to change, particularly with the Earth. It hasn't yet really changed for space. But Alice says people should see how intertwined our lives on Earth are with what happens in space. People use their smartphones every day. And some of the time, those smartphones are hooking into satellites. So you walk around with your smartphone and you don't think this is part of a whole network of stuff in space. So this means we actually are all stakeholders at some level in our access to these orbital services. And we don't want to have put all that stuff up there for no reason. So I think that makes it a legitimate public concern. How can we ensure our access to these services that people can hardly do without these days. And that could ultimately mean a larger shift in the way we see our interactions with the environment outside our home planet. Space isn't just an empty vacuum that we can put things into and then we take them out and it's the same space it was before. It will never be the same space it was before. We have changed it forever. It will always have human stuff in it now. We shouldn't always say that's a bad thing, perhaps. We can say, well, that means our environment, the human environment now extends out this far, and this means we all have a say in what goes on. So I think that's actually a kind of a positive thing that comes from looking at space junk and looking at space as part of it, not something that's separate from it. Space is really part of our daily life on Earth now in a way that it wasn't. And I think we should acknowledge that and and not see it as this empty place that we just sweep a broom through and it's all fine. I think we have to have a more complex relationship with it, and I think that can be a really positive thing. And that's The Take. The interviews for this episode were produced by Al Jazeera's Start Here team. Check out their video for a visual look at all the debris that's polluting space and how scientists think we might clean it up. We'll share it on our social platforms at AJ the Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Priyanka Tilvey, Alexandra Locke, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back 